Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and it's kind of like deja vu, because for those of you who are watching us on uh, YouTube, on our YouTube channel, Flight Safety Detectives, you'll notice that it looks like John, Todd, and I are dressed the same as we were in the last show. Well, it's because we are. Uh, given our travel schedules coming up, and a, uh, a special topic we're going to be talking about. We wanted to make sure that we got this show in the can before uh, before we all blast off to uh, different parts of the country. So, um, yes, we are still dressed the same because we are recording this show back to back with one of our other shows. But, you know, that that's production. That's schedules. That's life. So anyway. It's good to see you guys, as always, and um, we got a couple things to talk about. One big thing that I know is going to be near and dear to your heart, John, so we will get to it. But starting off, um, we uh, we had a number of accidents again this past week. Um, I, as I've always said, my office is up here at Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport, uh, the old Jefferson County or Jeffco Airport in Broomfield, and uh there was a training accident where we had a uh, private rated pilot working on his commercially in a uh, rented Cessna 172 was in the pattern doing some uh, simulated engine out um, pattern work. Unfortunately, it was not the best of conditions. We had extremely high winds uh, with numbers of reports of low level wind shear. And this pilot was doing these kinds of maneuvers solo. And apparently uh, and again, we're still waiting for the NTSB and the FAA to actually release anything. But from just the scuttlebutt around the office and what I know, um, it looks like the uh, pilot got himself slow on the approach and ended up stall spinning the airplane just short of the runway. It was a very tragic event. And the question, of course, from an investigative standpoint and a safety standpoint is why? Where was the instructor? Where was the flight school? Did anybody know what the agenda was for this particular pilot and as far as flying maneuvers that particular day? And if the flight instructor didn't know what he was practicing or going to practice, um, was that action condoned given the weather and, and that kind of thing? So I will follow that very closely. As we get more information, I will definitely keep, uh, keep us updated and you updated our audience. And then uh, as I get more information, John and I and Todd will eventually dissect this because 
that right there is uh, just a few things that uh, make this this accident one of those that uh, we can definitely learn some lessons from. But the topic at hand today is a uh, famous mechanic that, uh, of course, is near and dear to John's heart because John's been around a very long time, since the days of the Wright brothers. And so he had a very personal connection to Charlie Taylor. And Charlie Taylor is a famous maintenance technician mechanic who uh, ended up making a lot of history and in blazing the trail for maintenance technicians to this day. And, uh, and so, John, I think that um, because you are the one that's best suited and because Charlie Taylor and what he means to the industry, what he had meant to the industry, um, and actually the start of flying and, and accident investigation, I think the story is best told by you. All right. Well, Charlie Taylor uh, went to the wor work for the Wright brothers in early 2000, uh, 2000, 1902. <laughs> and and uh, so he was there before they even started uh, flying. They were flying gliders and he was building the gliders. He was running the bicycle shop, repairing the bicycles is what he was hired for. And he took over the shop because they were always down to uh, North Carolina flying their gliders, experimenting uh, with airfoil design. And so he ran the whole thing. And uh, one interesting piece about that in the very beginning is they used to crash that glider on a pretty regular basis down there. And they would telegraph back to uh, Ohio and tell them that they bent up the lower wing or whatever they broke. And Charlie Taylor would make the parts and ship them down there for the rights to install. And mind you, this is in the 1902, before Ford had an assembly line, before anybody else had an assembly line. So he was making parts that were at least damn close so that the rights could in install them without more fiddling. So standardized and, production, more or less. Uh, yes. And then as time moved into 2003, the rights. No, were, no, no, no. Yeah. 1903. <laughs> Thank you 1903. very much. It's just the opposite. In 2000, <laughs> we, we had all kinds of problems not calling it 2000, right? <laughs> so human factors at, at work here. That's right. So in 1903, the Wright brothers were ready to move to powered flight and they tried to get buy an engine for the airplane and nobody and none of the engine manufacturers had what they wanted or had any interest in building it. So they turned to Charlie to build it. And uh, he actually blazed a few trails here. And one of which he made the crankcase out of aluminum, which was unheard of at the time. It was maybe even the first engine made out of aluminum. Uh, but even more importantly, he made the crankshaft from hand from a block mm -hmm. of steel. Wow. And, in uh, in the 80s and 90s, a number of people tried to duplicate what Charlie did using the tools that they know we had available at the time, and they couldn't get it done. Mm. So it was wow. interesting in the talent that he had using a drill press and grinders and chisels, and, and he made the crankshaft. And another more interesting piece of all of that is that the Wright brothers wanted an eight-horsepower eight engine. 
Cowley didn't think it was enough, so he built them a 12-horsepower engine, and that barely was enough. Mm. So it was, it was, uh, he was part of it. And he was there for the plane crash in 1908-09 with the military crash. And it's, it's also interesting that he wanted to fly and the Wright brothers refused to teach him because they knew if he, if they taught him how to fly, he'd be off flying and he he wouldn't be turning wrenches for them. (laughs) Yeah, a little selfish motive there. Yes, it was. They kept him there. And actually, he worked for some of the some other famous uh, flyers, including the the uh, the coast to coast, the first successful coast to coast flight. And that, that was interesting, too, because that airplane crashed uh, many times across the country, you know, crashed on landing, ding, dinged up. And, and uh, they they essentially followed the railroad tracks west from the east coast west mm. and uh charlie taylor was in a boxcar with all kinds of supplies and tools so wow. they would crash the airplane and and uh, park the the uh, boxcar close by and he'd make all the parts and go back and put them on the airplane and a few days later they'd go for the next leg and that's the way they worked their way across the country huh. that's a so great story huh. it's crazy times back then but he he uh was unsung i mean nobody paid any attention to charlie he bounced around he worked in the second world war he worked for the a lot of military contractors on the west coast he, he moved to the west coast I, I think it was because his wife had asthma or something and uh, so he moved out to the west coast leaving the wright brothers after they set up their production facility and in uh you know, and typical for most mechanics, he didn't get paid anywhere near what he was worth. And he was actually uh, uh, pretty well destitute in the 50s after the wow. after the war. And it was the Aerospace Industries Association that actually paid for his retirement uh, living in a home out there until he passed away. Wow. So it was uh, an interesting career he started. He gave, he gave a lot to this industry like many people do. And then, you know, one of the things that uh, that we're talking about, of course, describing Charlie Taylor's life is what brought him to prominence? What, what made people wake up in the industry and realize this guy was somebody special? Well, that started in, in long after he died. You know, when he died, they, they, he was buried in the portal of the folding wings, which they were, are a number of famous uh, aviators out there in California. It's in Burbank, including Admiral Byrd and I forget who else. There's about a dozen of them that are all pioneers in the beginning of aviation. But it really was uh, a grassroots effort that was funneled through the Smithsonian initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the FAA uh, has stepped in to elevate the uh, Charlie Taylor's position uh, for the maintainers of this country, you know, and and now your AMP license has Charlie Taylor's picture on it instead of the Wright brothers' picture on it. Mm-hmm. So it's it uh, it took a long time coming to get them recognized, and uh, maintainers now have uh, if you've got fifty years and as a maintainer in aviation and with a unblemished record you can earn the charlie taylor award given by the faa 
And you are a recipient of that award. Yes, I am. And Which uh, we all tip our caps. And I have one follow-up question. You've been around long enough. Why do you only have one? Shouldn't you have two or three by now? <laughs> oh, now I'm getting, now the two of you are going to gang up. That, me. That's right. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, dirt is thousands of years, years old, John. I mean, you should have multiple awards. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the, the big thing is, and, and again, we've talked about this on the show. And, uh, and that is that the maintenance guys, uh, of all around the world, like you said, are unsung heroes. They, they work in the shadows, they work in the hangars and, and that kind of stuff. If something good happens, it's because of the pilot. If something bad happens, it's typically because of the pilot. That's the way we look at accident investigations and saving the day and that kind of stuff. But you rarely hear about the maintenance technician. And you and I were together. We just gave another presentation about uh, maintenance and, um, and the importance of really being plugged in as a maintenance technician in doing your work or a, a director of maintenance in a maintenance facility or a, a business aviation flight department. And they, you, you guys don't really get the credit, but I've always preached it. If you don't fix it, I don't fly it. And, and there has to be a high level of trust and in some cases even tacit trust. But we always live by trust, but verify, because as much as I love you, and I know that you can turn a wrench and you're very skilled at what you do, I want to know what you did to my airplane, because if something did happen um, while you were working on it, you got distracted and you forgot to put the safety wire on it, I want to make sure that that bolt doesn't back out and cause me problems. Yeah, you know, today we have... Uh a whole new generation of mechanics coming in and we've, we're losing a lot of the talent and the knowledge out the door. So that, that poses a whole other set of problems. You know, the airlines, uh, surprisingly, the airlines through this pandemic did not fall, uh, furlough their mechanics in a wholesale manner like they did the pilots hmm. uh, because there just are not enough mechanics out there. And in speaking of that, John, and, and a lot of attention has been brought to this, quote, pilot shortage. But there is also a shortage of qualified maintenance technicians across the board, because there are a variety of different disciplines of, uh, of maintenance technicians. And there's a shortage across the board. Yes, especially um, uh, a good wrench turner that has the skills in avionics and electronics. Uh, those are very, very scarce individuals. And uh, if you have one, you don't want to lose them. And, and with the trade schools, the way they are, I mean, there are a lot of people out there, both men and women, young men, young women, who, you know, college isn't for them, but they're good at, you know, doing other things. And that is they have knowledge about electricity. So being an electrician or whatever. Um, you know, maintenance technician. And you and I had the opportunity to meet several uh, young ladies down at Embry-Riddle a year ago when we were down there doing our show who are going into the maintenance side of the house. And, um, and they're very smart. Uh, we, we engaged them. They were on our show. Um, they were very well versed with what they wanted to do and what they wanted to accomplish. Well, just a few weeks ago, we had a maintenance skills competition. Todd and I were there. 
you you were supposed to be there you got sidetracked yeah and uh we had not only had a whole bunch of young ladies something just short of 50 uh but we had uh several hundred students and you know and one of one common theme that i heard from at least a half a dozen students was that when they were in high school and they indicated an that they wanted to, to be a mechanic, an airplane mechanic, uh, the discouraging that they got from the guidance counselors and, and other people telling them, no, you know, go to college and be a psychologist. Well, that doesn't get you much today. Mm -hmm. but, and that speaks to what you were saying earlier about the, the life that Charlie Taylor uh, lived, that he was unsung. Unsung in the sense of the average person in society who's not in aviation. They hear about pilots, they hear about engineers, they hear about astronauts. Apollo 13, the movie, they heard about the, 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 the controllers down in Mission Control. What do you see in popular culture that talks about the mechanics? Very, very little. Now, I'm not gonna decry that. It's like, look, they're out there making a product and they wanna focus on someone else. Turning it back on the next generation coming up. As we spoke about in the previous show, People in aviation now are much more attuned with getting the word out on their own, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. So I look at this as an opportunity. The ones who are coming up, those young people who have been growing up in this social media world, put out your video about your, your life as a mechanic. Talk about what you're doing in a podcast. Don't be afraid to go out there and be front and center about it. And circling back a little bit to the aerospace maintenance competition, one of the more fascinating students I spoke to uh, left high school, became an auto mechanic and because she wanted to work with her hands and do that sort of thing. And then she had several years as a flight attendant. Now she's coming back as a maintenance professional. Mm. And I can't help but think that not only has this person understood what it is to work with their hands, work around machinery, to work around technology, they've also been in aviation in a very, very deep way. And they're bringing that insight, that knowledge into the maintenance side of the house. I can't imagine what sort of insights she's bringing to the table as a former flight attendant, but it's gotta add to things and make it even better for the mechanic community as a whole to have that kind of diverse professional background in the maintenance field. And I think John, you know, one of the things that uh, we typically have a connotation of is, well, you're just a mechanic. They don't make much money. But I happened to see a salary survey recently that was posted, I think it was on Facebook or something, where I was pretty impressed by um, <laughs> the pay scale. Well, today, the airlines, the big guys, American, Southwest, United, uh, for 40-hour week, after you've been a, a journeyman, so to speak, after you've been there a few years, is $100,000. In today's money, that's that's a, a that's a, a wage that you can raise a family on. Yeah. So we're we're talking from high school to six figures in six years from high school. In other words, without going yeah. to college, you can have better than a living wage, enough to support a family in virtually every major metropolitan area in this country, and to do and so on, before you turn turn thirty. And on top of that, and what people don't factor in is all of the benefits that go with that salary, not only your typical health insurance and, and, and of course, seniority and everything else like that, but you get flight benefits and everything else. And when you put dollar values to that, 
that's a pretty good wage because you're, you know, bumping probably a hundred and a half or more. And And speaking of dollar value, let's go back to college for a minute or perhaps not go to college. It's uh, fairly well understood that if you go to, to college, especially one that's not a publicly financed college, it's easy after four years having 40, 50, 100,000 plus dollars worth of debt. And there's some aviation professions, particularly as a, a professional pilot, where on top of your four-year degree, you might have another five or six-figure debt to pay off before you start day one in the profession. And I would dare say that a professional pilot, the first few years of his or her career, is probably going to be making less than a mechanic in the first few years of his or her career. A mechanic who might start immediately at a major airline. Where the pilot may not. The airlines today are are trying to get the students right out of school for a couple of reasons. And I think one of the most important was they get to to, uh, influence the culture of that individual. So no bad habits. That's an easy way to say it. But, uh, you know, we had uh, somewhere around 40 people that we know from the competition that have had interviews for jobs with airlines. Uh, I know one individual that, uh, or one carrier airline, that if you were at the competition and, and they solicited you when they were all there, they solicited you, your interview was the final interview. They bypassed all this stuff in the front, and you went right to final interview. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's it. The competition has been very good for the students, and that's why I do it. Right? I mean, it's it's aimed at the individuals, trying to create opportunity. Airline, you know, aviation was great to me, given that I, where I grew up and and uh, and where my friends all went, uh, nowhere near where I went. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, aviation was great to me and it can be great to other people too. And you don't have to go, you don't have to be the pilot. I mean, there's other jobs too. I mean, uh, in the purchasing side on the it side, yeah. I mean, there's just so much opportunity. I tell people, you know, they say, Oh, I don't want to go into the, into a shop for an airline. I don't want to do the same thing every day. Well, we had a, a, a shop in at us air in Pittsburgh where they overhauled 400 different components. You could come to work every day and work on something different and be in a shop environment inside nice and warm. I was outside in the winters and the rain and all the rest of it. So, I mean, it's just so much to aviation, so much opportunity in aviation. And and it, it makes me feel good to be able to help so many young people get out there. Todd and I both, and uh, we're not through. Yeah. And we well, were mentioning aviation, aviation, aviation. I'd like to expand that to aerospace because there has actually been at least one person who was at the competition a couple of years ago who's not only in aerospace, but as you told us, John, closed the hatch on one of the last uh, latest SpaceX flights with people in it. Yes. Just a few years ago, this person was a student. They're out there launching rocket ships. Yeah. That's, that's there's, a college cool. in, there's a college in, in uh, technician, a, a maintenance school in Northern Florida, uh, who was at the competition, their entire graduating class that's graduating right now, the entire class, and the way they say it is, is they're going to space. They were all, every one of them was hired by the space program. In the next class, half of them have already been hired. So, you know, we see now Musk 
has opened up the, the space horizon. We got the other the other billionaires coming in right behind them. That that whole launch business is going to break wide open here in the next few years, yeah. and and the FAA is going to have trouble keeping up with it. And not and, only in space, but in the next few years, there might be some innovations in aviation. For example, uh, I'm not sure what the uh, term of art is for the uh, vertical taxis that are going to be semi-autonomous and electrically driven, where yeah, there's a whole getting... series of technologies that have to come on board, have to be regulated, have to be maintained. And it will take a different mentality to maintain something that is so heavily dependent on computers and chips and electrical propulsion. Yeah. The and opportunities why... are going to be out there. And that's why a computer background, uh, you know, electrical background will be very valuable um, because everything is turning to automation and, and AI and, uh, and a bunch of other things. So, but for our audience who uh, is both listening and watching us, um, you can tell that this is, um, this is something that's very passionate for John because you hear that little quiver in his voice. And that's not just because we got a lousy radio uh, connection or microphone connection. It's because... Um, you know, John gets very emotional when uh, when he talks about these things. And uh, believe me, I've been with John when he's been very emotional. And that happened during Value Jet. Um, I had to get him to stop crying at the public hearing. So um, it, it's that's the passion he brings to this part of the industry. We should all, uh, you know, at least take a lesson from John about having passion you know, you get into the aviation business, not for a job. You want a job, go flip hamburgers somewhere or do something else. But you get into aviation because it's passion and, and, and you want to accomplish something. You want to contribute. You want to make aviation and aerospace better. And, uh, and you have to bring it every single day. And trust me, I mean, the three of us are, have been in aviation a long time. And yeah, there are days when it's just like, man, I just need a day off. I don't really feel like doing something today. But because of what's deep inside, you go to work because you know you're going to make a difference. And turning a wrench is making a difference because what you do and how you do it is the difference between success and failure for that airline, for that airplane, for that pilot, for that company, whoever's operating that aircraft. Um, and your fingerprints are all over it. And you should be proud that when you've accomplished something and, uh, and you've got that airplane flying or you keep it flying, that every day you can take pride that when that airplane flies over your head, you can say, yeah, I turned a wrench on that airplane and that's why it's flying today. So and this, is, um, this is a profession that you don't have to start at age 18. There are a lot of folks in the maintenance profession, aviation in general, who come about this uh, early in their career, mid-career, not necessarily when they're teenagers. And the opportunities to do so are, depending on where you are, you might have uh, government-sponsored, state-sponsored schools that aren't going to be free, but it'll be substantially cheaper than going to a commercial um, maintenance uh, uh, training organization. If there are folks in the military who are in some sort of maintenance profession within the military, there is a process you have to go through to get certified to work on the civilian side. Same sort of process at some levels that all maintainers go through. You basically have to be certified by the FAA. There are tests you have to take, certain things you have to learn. But again, if you're in that space, either in technology or in military maintenance, or even in a completely different field, like one of the people in the competition, former flight attendants, more than one we saw there, former auto mechanics, 
who go over to the aviation side. Take the skills that you have, build on it. Yep. And, um, and with that, um, I think uh, the three of us all agree that it will be a happy birthday celebration for, uh, for a guy who really was a trailblazer for the under the wing aspect of aviation and uh, did so much to contribute. And that's why we celebrate his birthday. And that's why this show is being aired on his birthday is to give him that honor and, uh, and encourage people to go forward, especially young people who, uh, you know, college may not be for them, but this is a very rewarding and lucrative career. If you choose to, uh, to work on aircraft and show your talent in, in that regard. So Todd, as we wrap up this show, any parting thoughts? Open up your eyes, whether you're gonna be a maintenance professional or not, open up your eyes to the fact that this is a part of aviation and aerospace. That's a key part of aerospace. If you haven't paid much attention to it before, spend at least a few minutes to pay attention to it now. And John, you know, as I always do, I leave you with our last words. And I will continue to focus on the pilots with doing an adequate pre-flight if you have any questions, get a mechanic to help you understand the pre-flight you're doing on the airplane, that type of airplane. If you're going to go flying, do a very thorough pre-planning session. The flight should start before you leave your hotel room or home and start thinking about flight, what's going on, the weather, beginning, end, and in the middle. So many times people just omit what's going on in the middle. And when you show up, at the airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight, very thorough. If you go flying, put your head on a swivel, keep that head moving, see and avoid, and please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.